always reminds me of the uh, the song we would sing at camp about announcements, which I won't uh, subject you to. So Shabbat Shalom. Thank you uh, again for joining us. I, uh, I wanted to take a moment to share some words about this morning's Torah portion, which, as I mentioned last night, is always a very special Torah portion for me because it's the Torah portion of my bar mitzvah uh, so many years ago. And there is a curious thing, I think, uh, about uh, when I think about this Torah portion. There's a curious thing about horoscopes and fortune cookies. Read either of them, and they will almost always speak with great insight into what is going on in your life, what you are contemplating, struggling with, or experiencing at that moment. And we wonder why that is. We might think it's the prescience of the writer of these oracles of observation. And while you're welcome to believe that, if it helps you with facing the perils they describe, a more rational, reasoned explanation is more likely something called confirmation bias, also known as biased assimilation. Confirmation bias occurs from the direct influence of desire on beliefs. When people would like to a certain idea or concept to be true, they end up believing it to be true. They are motivated by wishful thinking. And this error leads to the individual, leads the individual to stop gathering information when the evidence gathered so far confirms the views or prejudices one would like to be true. Once we have formed a view, we embrace information that confirms that view while ignoring or rejecting information that casts doubts on it. Confirmation bias suggests that we don't perceive circumstances objectively, that we pick out those bits of data that make us feel good because they confirm our prejudices. Thus, we may become prisoners of our own assumptions. All of this was rattling around in my head this week as I considered what message to share with you this morning for Parshat Noah. Last night I spoke about the seven Noahite laws and how those commandments given to all of humanity are the foundation code for human behavior. And that our self-assessment of our adherence to those seven laws is an important determination individually and collectively. If we will end up in the boat or in the water during the next divine judgment of humanity. The sermon is on YouTube and I invite you to watch it after, after this one or during this one if you're bored, I guess. I mentioned confirmation bias because as I read Noah this week, so many of the messages that I think we need to hear at this particular time are found in this text. And I had to wonder, was the Torah speaking to us like a fortune cookie or a horoscope with predictive insight into our present experience? Or was I simply looking for everything that I was finding? That the lessons of this Parsha are a result of confirmation bias on my part and not great insight on the part of the ancient texts. And this matters because if we are to give authority to our textual tradition, we need to confront it with the integrity of not trying to make it say what we want to hear. This of course is topic du jour with regard to how we hear political speech how we read data about COVID cases and testing and the climate crisis and polls. And it was the cornerstone of the recent US Senate confirmation hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett, where the debates sound very much at times like those in rabbinic seminary or even Talmud over the letter versus the intent of the law. Now I'll make the caveat that I am being very generous here to compare nearly any political debate today in any country, let alone the Supreme Court confirmation hearings of Judge Barrett, 
with Talmudic dialect or dialectic. Uh, I think that's to do a great disservice to the rabbis of the Talmud. Hillel and Shammai famously argue for the sake of heaven, the Shem Shemaim. Political debate today most often, I think, gets the converse response as we shout, or I shout at my TV screen, oh, for heaven's sake, and on from there. With all of that as perhaps a far too lengthy introduction, I want to hold up two stories from this morning's tour portion for each of us to consider for the message they provide for this moment in the human experience. The first is the story of Noah himself, an ish sadik bedorotam, a righteous man in his generation, surrounded by so much wickedness that God decided to destroy the world and all human beings in it. Noah and his family are the only remnant of humanity worthy of divine salvation. Why does Noah survive and everyone else drowns in the floodwaters? Was it human wickedness or homicide at the hands of heaven? If we start from the premise that God is good and our Torah proclaims all of God's ways are of justice and peace, then God is Truman and his decision, President Truman, and his decision to use the atomic bomb to end World War II, the necessary evil that prevents the greater destruction and loss of human life. This reading would have God pressing the reset button on humanity to save the natural world from human hands destruction. And as I taught last night, at least two and perhaps more of those seven Noahide laws are environmentally and ecologically focused. So from this lens, God is removing a cancer, human beings, from the body, which is the planet. Another view, and there are certainly more than two, I'm only presenting these two, is that God gives up on human beings and in anger and rage seeks to punish rather than rehabilitate human behavior. Later in Torah, God sends prophets, God gives commandments, God expresses regret, and even permits humans to face the consequences of our own mistakes. So, is God hero or villain in the Noah story? And what is Noah? Silent in the face of a human genocide, it could depend on what you are looking for the story to tell you. It could depend on your confirmation bias. The second story comes later, that's the Tower of Babel. It's almost forgotten at the end of the text. And we read there in chapter 11, all the earth had the same language and the same words. We're told that they gathered in the land of Shinar and said, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches to the sky so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered all over the earth. This, of course, is the remnant, or the I should say, the, the, the new inhabitants of the earth following the destruction in Noah's time. A favorite midrash that may sound familiar explains, many, many years were passed in building the tower. It reached so great a height that it took a year to mount to the top. A brick was therefore more precious in the sight of the builders than a human being. If a man fell down and met his death, none took notice of it. But if a brick dropped, they wept because it would take a year to replace it. So intent were they upon accomplishing their purpose that they would not permit a pregnant woman to interrupt herself in her work of brick making when she went into labor. Molding bricks, she gave birth to her child and tying it around her body in a sheet, she went on molding bricks. I read that story and I cannot help but think of the arguments taking place here and in Canada and around the world 
over masks, lockdowns, COVID, and the economy. What is more valuable, people or bricks? Many of us would probably respond without much of any hesitation that people, of course, are more valuable than bricks. But some will say bricks because the bricks give the people purpose and reason. The schlepping of those bricks, they were maybe the non-essential businesses of the day that allowed people to put food on the table and give the workers dignity. My point with both these stories is that you could read the story either way if you're looking to prove your point. This is because people are prone to believe what they want to believe. Seeking to confirm our beliefs comes naturally while it feels strong and counterintuitive to look for evidence that contradicts our beliefs. And this explains why opinions survive and spread. Disconfirming instances are far more powerful in establishing the truth. Disconfirmation would require looking for evidence to disprove it. Failing to interpret information in an unbiased way can lead to serious misjudgments. And by understanding this, we can learn to identify it in ourselves and in others. We can be cautious of data, we should be cautious of data that seems to immediately support our own views. And so the nechemta, the moral of this story, if you will, is to set our hypothesis and look for instances to prove that we are wrong not for instances that prove that we are right. This is perhaps a true definition, I think, of self-confidence. The ability to look at the world without the need to look for instances that please our own ego. Willard Quinn and J.S. Olin described this bias in their writing, The Web of Belief. And they described it thusly. The desire to be right and the desire to have been right are two different desires. And the sooner we separate them, the better off we are. The desire to be right is the thirst for truth. On all counts, both practical and theoretical, there is nothing but good to be said about the desire to be right. The desire to have been right, on the other hand, is the pride that goeth before the fall. It stands in the way of our seeing we were wrong and thus blocks the progress of our knowledge. Confirmation bias clouds our judgment. It gives us a skewed view of information, even when it consists only of numerical figures. And understanding this cannot fail to transform a person's worldview, or rather our perspective on it. Lewis Carroll stated, we are what we believe. We are what we believe we are. But it seems that the world is also what we believe it to be. Lastly, a poem by Shannon Alder, illustrates this concept. <clears throat> she wrote, read it with sorrow and you will feel hate. Read it with anger and you will feel vengeful. Read it with paranoia and you will feel confusion. Read it with empathy and you will feel compassion. Read it with love and you will feel flattery. Read it with hope and you will feel positive. Read it with humor and you will feel joy. Read it without bias and you will feel peace. Do not read it at all, and you will not feel a thing. Today is election day in BC. It seems like every day for the last four years or more has been election day in the United States. In the face of COVID and climate change and systemic racism, we are confronted, if not bombarded, with data and anecdote that are complex and hard to discern at times. My suggestion is this. Be cautious of data that seems to immediately support your views. 
Look for what might disprove your assumptions and then to make your best, most reasoned decision on what it all means. Be cognizant of confirmation. Being cognizant of confirmation is not easy, but with patience, it is possible to recognize the role it plays in the way we interpret information. We need to search out disconfirming evidence. Hillel and Shammai, those rabbis of the Talmud, were famous for arguing each other's point so as to arrive together at an understanding, even if they still disagreed in the end. See the other side. See all sides. Not just what you see from your own perspective. Shabbat Shalom.